Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Wow, what a day we have for you. The news cycle and the guests, uh, you're going to love today's show. Uh, We are witnessing the citizens of Ukraine right now rise up and fight against Russian President Vladimir Putin and his country, Russia, which may or may not be behind him. We're seeing extraordinary events inside of Russia as people by the thousands take to the streets there to protest what he is doing to Ukraine in a country, Russia, in which one is not allowed to protest. Um, I've got with me today two guys you already love and two guys who have sacrificed so much for our country. They know firsthand about the sacrifice of war. They know about what it's like to put country above self when freedom and democracy are on the line. Rob O'Neill is a U.S. Navy SEAL combat veteran. He has been a part of some of the biggest SEAL missions ever conducted. He is best known, of course, for being the SEAL Team 6 member who shot and killed Osama bin Laden. But he also helped rescue fellow SEAL Marcus Luttrell in Afghanistan. And he was the lead paratrooper in the rescue of Captain Richard Phillips from the Marisk, Alabama. The hijacking became the basis for the movie Captain Phillips. Uh, featuring Tom Hanks. I mean, I joked with him last time he was on or the first time he's like uh, he's like the the Waldo, you know, of of military. Man, He's been on everything and everything he touches turns into a Hollywood movie. <laughs> uh, you've got you've got Captain Phillips, you've got um, uh, Lone Survivor and then, of course, Zero Dark Thirty, all of which feature some of his heroism. And speaking of heroes, Dakota Meyer, is also with us today. He is our country's second youngest living Medal of Honor recipient, our nation's highest military decoration. In 2009, under heavy enemy fire from the Taliban, Dakota disobeyed direct orders and repeatedly went back into the fight, into the ambush area to find his fallen brothers uh, and to retrieve the bodies of those who had died, as well as rescue those who were still fighting and needed his help. He received his Medal of Honor from President Obama at the White House in 2011. And when they finally got to those trapped Americans, Dakota jumped out and he ran toward them, drawing all those enemy guns on himself, bullets kicking up the dirt all around him. He kept going until he came upon those four Americans laying where they fell together as one team. Dakota and the others who had joined him knelt down, picked up their comrades, and through all those bullets, all the smoke, all the chaos, carry them out one by one. Because as Dakota says, that's what you do for a brother. A former Marine who read about your story said that you showed how in the most desperate final hours, our brothers and God will not forsake us. And because of your humble example, our kids, especially back in Columbia, Kentucky and in small towns all across America, they'll know that no matter who you are or where you come from, You can do great things as a citizen and as a member of the American family. Hmm. In the end, Dakota is credited with saving the lives of at least 36 U.S. and Afghan troops that day. These two men have gone to hell and back for our country. And when they returned home, civilian life led to a new host of challenges, which we will also discuss over the next two hours. It's my honor to have them here today. They've written a new book titled The Way Forward. Master life's toughest battles and create your own lasting 
Legacy. It is a book they hope will help you learn to tackle obstacles in your own life and shows a bit of how they got to become these extraordinary human beings. This is their first interview ahead of the book's release tomorrow. Rob Dakota, welcome to the show. So great to have you back again. Thank you for having us, Megan. Great to be here. Thank you. I'm so glad you guys did this. I'm glad as a human that I get to read this and that you've taken the time to sort of put your thoughts down on paper. You've both talked about, you know, your missions before and written books about your missions. But this is like, okay, who is Rob O'Neill as a kid? I love the part about, you know, I wasn't really like a mixed martial arts kid. I wasn't the bully and I wasn't on the football team. I was more likely to be the one getting beat up than doing the beating up. And Dakota, like your stories too about like, you know, your your cow Tinkerbell and just kind of like puts a real (laughs) the the SEAL team guys don't start off totally grizzled in all cases. So if you're hoping to be a Navy SEAL or, or a Marine in Dakota's case and you're, you know, maybe you're hoping for your son or whatever, like maybe they're like looking a little weak to you right now. Fear not. Fear not, because they could one day wind up with two silver stars and three bronze stars like uh, Rob or the Medal of Honor like Dakota. Okay, so we're going to get to all of this. I love, love, love the book and your backstories. But let's just start with the latest news, because unlike most of the people on Twitter right now, you guys actually know what it's like to be in a firefight, to actually you know be in the middle of a war, try to figure out what's real and what's not. And I want to tell you, this past weekend was extraordinary, extraordinary in Ukraine. To me, I'll give you my layperson's assessment and you tell me whether I'm on to something. But I think this guy Zelensky, you know, the the president of Ukraine, is single handedly turning this thing around. He refuses to leave. They we went in and said, they're going to kill you. Let us give you a transport out. And he said, I I don't need a ride. I need ammo. I'm not going anywhere. This guy's former actor. Nobody knew what he was going to be. He won't leave. He's inspiring all the Ukrainians not to leave. You're not supposed to leave if you're a fighting age male, but they're not trying to leave, according to all reports. They're staying. They, they, they're making Molotov cocktails when they can't get their arms, their hands on arms. Um, and so he's been inspirational. And the Ukrainians have been inspirational, fighting, not giving up, you know, doing whatever they can to preserve their homeland, which is under invasion right now by 200,000 Russian troops. So that's sort of where we were going into the weekend. It was like, well, they're going to fall because... They're outmanned and they're outmatched. But wow, crazy fight and inspirational you know, resolve. Then over the weekend, finally, Europe found its spine. Europe found its backbone after all these years. And what we're seeing today, I'll give you guys some of the highlights, OK, because I've been looking for somebody who would just list for me everything that that was going down. And um, here's some examples. OK, the, the UK sending light anti-armor defensive weapon systems, France, more military equipment as well as fuel, Netherlands, air defense rockets and anti-tank systems to Ukraine, Germany, now planning on devoting 2% of its budget to its own military, which it hasn't been doing. It's, be- it's gone totally soft. Now it's finding uh, a new resolve, sending 1,000 anti-tank weapons, 500 Stringer surface-to-air missiles, Canada sending lethal military weaponry, Canada, Justin Trudeau, oh, oh no, Sweden, Sweden. 5,000 anti-tank rockets to Ukraine, as well as field rations and body armor. Belgium, 3,000 more automatic rifles, 200 anti-tank weapons, 3,800 tons of fuel. For Portugal, night vision goggles, bulletproof vests, helmets, grenades, am- ammo, autographic, automatic, uh, automatic G3 rifles. Romania, fuel, bulletproof vests, helmets, other military material. Czech Republic, 
30,000 pistols, 7,000 assault rifles, and so on. The U.S., anti-armor, small arms, body armor, various munitions in support of Ukraine. Now it gets crazier. Uh, EU will shut down EU airspace to Russian aircraft. We'll seek to ban Russian state-owned media. We'll target Russian ally Belarus with sanctions. Japan will join a group of uh, seven nations in the EU. We'll freeze the Russian central bank's foreign exchange assets. Uh, We'll prevent Vladimir Putin's government from accessing tens of billions. South Korea will ban exports of strategic items and go on. Singapore imposing appropriate sanctions and restrictions. Australia sending lethal aid. Germany, I mentioned. Um, But they're also pushing aside a long-held government policy not to send weapons to conflict zones. They hadn't been doing that. Now they will. And they're also allowing the Dutch to send 400 German-made anti-tank weapons and Estonia to send uh, cold-era howitzers, transfers it had been blocking for months. Turkey! Turkey calls it a war, which could pave the way for uh, the NATO member, Turkey, to enact an international pact limiting Russian naval passage through the Black Sea. Switzerland, you guys. Switzerland! That's the one we're always like, I'm Switzerland, you know, like your brother and sister are fighting. I'm Switzerland. Switzerland is getting into this, adopting the EU sanctions against Russia. I was like, who knew? Hungary and so on. Um, This is extraordinary. And the way uh, my pal Noah Rothman put it over on commentary was the Europe that existed last week no longer exists. It looks very, very different today than it did. So. Sorry for the long windup, but that's that's an extraordinary series of events. What do you guys make of it? No, that's that's a, a great windup, and I pr- appreciate that. It is. I mean, even a week ago, um, I was personally talking about Germany as far as NATO. They've never paid their two uh, percent GDP, which they were. I mean, if you think they were, they said they weren't going to be ready to pay that until two thousand thirty-one, and I thought that was kind of rude of Germany because if you think about it, they're kind of the reason we needed NATO a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, but now with this turnaround, and it comes back to President Zelensky, um, and again, on social media, you're going to get people here and there, and it's propaganda, this, propaganda, whatever. Um, he's the face of it, and he's part of the reason a lot of people are coming together, because whether or not he, he is exactly where he says he is fighting, he is there, along with uh, the, the mayor um, of, uh, of Kiev. Uh, and 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 all the men, the men and women, the, the the shop owners that are making Molotov cocktails. I mean, I wouldn't personally want to be throwing burning booze at a tank, but if you have that uh, in you to defend your country, and and I love the way they're saying we're doing this because we don't want to go anywhere else. This is our home. Just and with, I mean, Putin's lost his marbles, and he he did say once he got the stiff resistance from Ukraine. Well, hey, Finland and and Sweden, you better not do this. And uh, and those two, they're not in NATO, but they've really not done much. They're they're getting involved. And I love well, that obviously the uh, the Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, they're involved, Hungary, Poland. But it, it's almost it, it's this is Europe uniting. And I was saying at first, I don't want American troops on the ground. But I was even saying, you know, this is a European problem. Europe's stepping up and they're talking about paying more than they need for NATO, even though uh, Ukraine's not a NATO country. They're defending innocent people because. A lot. I mean, this is something that should almost unite everybody. Nobody really wants this war except that crazy person in Moscow. Yeah. I mean, Dakota, it's like the they're making military munitions there with these Molotov cocktails. You're seeing grandmas in the street go up to Russian soldiers and yell at them. I mean, like the, the Ukrainian people feel what we're all seeing, which is this is a sovereign nation under attack for no reason. Right. It's, the, Putin's propaganda war isn't 
winning. He's, you know, bellying on about how there are neo-Nazis in there and how they're torturing Russian uh, speaking Ukrainians in these sort of, more, sort of more separatist regions. No one's believing it. Even the Russians aren't believing it. The Ukrainian resolve to fight this and get them out of Ukraine and to live a peaceful life has been extraordinary. Usually we see these countries just collapse when you see a stronger country, like a big bully like Russia go in. You know, they just collapse like they don't. Not so. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think you would have seen this collapse had the president left. I think that, you know, I, I, he's obviously not doing all, you know, everything, but I do think he is the keystone of this arch that's keeping that entire country fighting. And I think that, you know, that, that's what's going to be held on. You know, you see the media who's putting all this attention. Everybody wants these like the wins or like how far is it going to go or, you know, everybody's trying to get get their tagline in there. And they keep talking about, well, you know, Putin taking Kiev, right? And and even if he takes it, even if he runs his troops through it and he puts people inside of the, the city buildings, he's still going to have 20 years of, of insurgency across it. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, I mean, Putin better be ready for a long, long war. Um, if Because if not, I mean, look, we know what it's like to walk in somewhere with air superiority. And we know what it's like to walk in with the money and the troops and the training and uh, and then have to fight for 20 years. You know what I mean? Uh, and I don't think that we can over underestimate the over complexity of street fighting. Right. I mean, it is a complex deal. We it took the United States, which is by far the best fighters on the face of the planet that ever existed. And um it took us over three weeks to take over Fallujah that had, what, 300,000 people in it. You're talking about a city that has uh, it's the size of Chicago. I mean, you know, th this is going to be no small undertaking. And then what does he do after he gets it? Right. Um, it's just incredible to see these people, their willingness to rise up and fight for their own country, to fight for what they believe in. You know, there's all this stuff coming out now about, you know, who's supporting who and, and all this, you know, trying to look at, you know, well, what can we believe and what can, what can we not? At the end of the day, um, you know, you have to humanize this aspect of it. And that's what we did in The Way Forward, right, is obviously our first books came out. And we were talking more about, you know, about the the war and the black and white side of it of, you know, who's wrong and right. And, but there's just a humanization factor to this that, that we cannot miss. And you're seeing this across the globe right now of what hope can do. And these people hope and they believe so much that they can win and in their country that they're willing to take Molotov cocktails and throw them at tanks. Yeah. I mean, they're at the point now where uh, reportedly Putin's people are going to meet with senior Ukrainian diplomats. Uh, I guess they had to agree to go meet in Belarus, which is Putin's puppet. And they've been doing whatever Putin wants. This country sort of in between the two. And um, but the, the Ukrainian uh, officials agreed to do it. It's not going to be Putin and it's not going to be Zelensky, but it's going to be, you know, underlings that are going to go meet. And no, there are no preconditions. And Putin last week had been saying, you will agree. You will agree to neutrality and you will agree not to join NATO. And then we will meet. And now here they are. No preconditions meeting. I mean, who knows? You know, Zelensky saying, I don't think it's going to amount to much. And they haven't stopped the fighting in the meantime. But it's something. Um, meanwhile, can I ask you guys about this? Because the most concerning headline has been about Putin saber rattling with his nukes. Uh, he's like, that's not really what you want to hear. But and, you know, who knows whether it's true, but there are reports that he he seems unstable to those who are around him. People have been watching him for a long time, think he's Putin might be losing it, you know, that he 
he changed during the pandemic was the reporting. And now he's putting their nuclear arsenal and those who oversee it on alert. Um, That's concerning. And it's especially concerning because of all the things I listed at the top. He's he's got to be feeling concerned about Europe uniting against him. This is his worst nightmare. I mean, you got you got you got like Kosovo applying now openly for NATO membership. You got these other countries, you know, who had been like considering it. Um, I'm trying to see who it was. It was Finland and Sweden, at least making noises about it. And uh, this is the last thing he wanted. Right. He, he hates a united Europe. He does not like to be seen as the universal bad guy. So the, that combined with the threat of nukes hmm, makes you wonder what, it, what his next move is. Well, his, his uh, issue was he was saying that NATO's against him. NATO wasn't against him and Ukraine was not a threat. And he's gotten exactly the opposite of what he wanted. Now, like you said, with Kosovo, they want in. And you mentioned Belarus. Uh, Putin thought Be- uh, Ukraine was going to be like Belarus, where it's kind of rolling, no one fights, and all of a sudden, bam, you're part of Russia. Uh, Ukraine, you know, you mentioned Fallujah. Uh, we were fighting, what, 300,000, a uh, city of 300,000, but not everyone was fighting. There's several million in Kiev, and they all want to fight. Uh, and then, of course, Putin's going to, you know, he, I, I think he went crazy during the pandemic. There were reports that his family had uh, COVID. He never wanted to admit it. But even Condoleezza Rice was saying he looks like he's a little crazy, like his face is chubbier and he's not quite making sense. So he's, he's saber rattling the, the nuclear threats there. That's scary. I mean, that's that's something we can't even imagine. Uh, but well, I, I think the, the first option is a little bit worse. We, there, there's a bomb that he has about 22,000 pounds. It's a thermal barrack charge. We have one that we dropped actually on uh, um, the Taliban. It's called a massive ordnance air burst. We call it the mother of all bombs, the Moab. But he's got one that it's it's um, it's a thermal barrack charge. It detonates about six feet off the ground and it'll make a crater three football fields and it, it, it'll, it'll liquefy anyone inside. And if, if he dropped that on a populace, um, it's devastating. But he can say he didn't go nuclear. That's as close you can get. And everyone knows that we've done it. Uh, Russia made one, I'm assuming, because China steals everything from us. They have one, too. But that, that's like the next step in how serious are we? And it's scary when you get someone that uh, maniacal, a little bit senile, but his back's against the wall, finger on the trigger. Uh, I don't care how many times they're in treaties. They say, well, we have them, but they're not aimed at anyone. That's a that's a bunch of bull. They're aimed at something. And uh, he's got access to stuff. And um, I'm not sure going into Belarus is going to do anything. And Putin wants to save face. But, it, you know, it's going to come down to something really, really graphic or it's going to turn into like a Julius Caesar thing. Just step mm. back in a coup. You know, before I went over there to interview him, one of the I had briefings with former FBI, former CIA folks, you know, who spent their lives studying Russia and Putin. And one of the things that I learned was that, you know, Russia is basically a kleptocracy and uh, whoever's in charge is totally corrupt and has tons of money and houses and assets stationed all over Russia. And the sort of way it works is you just have to stay in power. <laughs> like the way of preventing oneself from winding up dead or in jail is you have to stay in power. And that's what he's been doing, right? I mean, he's effectively just a, a, an authoritarian leader there now. We, he went through the sort of the motions of pretending that Medvedev was president for a while, but he, he took back over and hasn't given it up since. And there's a real worry if he feels trapped, if he feels in a corner, where he feels like, okay, not only is Russia losing face and compromising positions that they've worked 75 years to not compromise, what if he's, what if the Russian people and even, you know, his underlings start turning on him and the the, the solution within Russia is Putin needs to go, right? I mean, you, I know, Dakota, you write in the book a lot about like, and of course, this is, this led to your Medal of Honor. There's, there are times in which soldiers need to disobey orders. And understand yeah. what's what's right might not line up with what's 
what you've been told to do. Yeah, I mean, look, and, and I totally agree with that. I, I truly think that the you know the results of of, of Ukraine is going to come down to how far um, Putin will take this, right? I mean, how how far is he willing to go? Is he willing to go nuclear, right? But I, I think on the backside of that is there's going to have to be someone under him push the button to go nuclear, and you can't ever pull out that that I call it the humanization factor, right? Like. The, the factor that I have to push this and I have to know that my family is going to pay for this because they know that as soon as the nuke comes out, they know that the wrath of the world is going to be unleashed on, on Russia. They know that the wrath of the world is just going to come out and there are going to be nukes dropped and whatever he does in Ukraine will be a hundred times worse on him. So Putin's kind of in this position, though. It's a, it, it, it sucks for Putin. Uh, maybe we should send him a book. Because <laughs> um, he's going to nice he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna need a way forward right after this. But I think he thought that he was going to run through this like like Rob said, be be over in a couple of days. Nobody yeah. was going to fight. He was going to have it. and He's going to go back. But you know, for our generation, um, you know, Putin's kind of been like this guy that we've all been warned about, right? He's kind of like the guy in the bar of of hey, you know that that guy can fight. You know, don't mess with him. You know, don't mm-hmm. don't ever get you know don't ever mess with him. So now he comes out and we're watching him fight uh, for the first time that I can remember yeah. in my life. And he's, and he's, and he's losing. He's, not good. he's losing. He's not good at it. Right. So if Putin goes back and he's going to be the leader of Russia and they want to be powerful, I mean, he's really Putin's the laughing stock of, of, of the world right now. Well, he's put himself in a bad spot too, because um, he's been quoting uh, Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, and you know, he's, he's, he's talking legacy talk now and he's pushing mm-hmm. 70 Another scary part is he, realizing that he's not tough. What if he needs to go out with the bang? And there, there's, there's all this, the, the, like we said, the, the human element parts of it, the legacy el- elements. How does he, because he wants his own legacy, but he also wants Mother Russia. And if he makes it look weak, who knows what he'll do? So, you know, this not, you know, he, he yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's scary. There's a lot of, a lot of ins and outs. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you, you don't want to believe something bad will happen because it never has. Here's a guy that said, if, if you interfere, you'll see, a response you've never seen in the history of your nation. He's talking to us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I, but that, I, I just, yeah, go ahead. But I, I just think that, look, uh, no matter how this goes, whether he takes Ukraine um, or whether he backs out, like I, 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 my prediction is this is the end of Putin. It very well could be. I mean, all the things that we were saying that they should do, they're now doing, except for cutting off the oil and gas uh, access to, you know, to Russia that, that that no one's giving up yet. Although Germany has now made uh, the Nord Stream 2 you know, disconnection and sort of he, they've said we're done and we're, we're permanently done. It's crazy what happened in Germany. They totally underestimated the new chancellor of Germany. They thought they had another Angela Merkel on their hands who wanted to appease Russia and be more dovish and not build up the military and not be confrontational. And this new guy is like, how you like me now? It is crazy. I mean, it's, it's really worth reading what happened in Germany over the over the weekend. So um, yeah. we'll see that the actual line was that Putin has his nuclear de- deterrent forces to, on high alert amid the spiraling tensions that the defense minister uh, and the chief of the military's general staff have been ordered to put the nuclear deterrent forces in a special regime of combat 
duty could absolutely just be saber rattling. But then that's what people said about the 200,000 troops around Ukraine. Um, there's so much more to go over with the two greatest guys. We're so lucky that they're Americans, that they they decided to risk their own lives and fight for us and now are continuing to share their wisdom with us. Now, Rob O'Neill, Dakota Meyer coming right back on um, their book. Their lives have been fascinating and they're going to share some of the lessons uh, of heroism and strength and resilience right after this. Don't go away. Recession and inflation are here. Gas, housing, and everyday goods are up, way up. And you want to be ready for any situation. So what would you do if there's no food on the shelf? Arc Heirloom Seeds are here to help. Did you know 99% of seeds sold today can't reproduce? With Heirloom Seeds, you only have to plant once. Then you can grow year after year, giving you and your family stability and security because things are getting crazy out there. Our all-in-one seed kit provides everything you need to grow your own food. This premium seed kit has a over 65 varieties, 50,000 seeds, and stores for 15 years. You'll also get our exclusive seed guide to make growing a no-brainer. Arc Seed Kits is a family-owned and operated business and the most trusted name in the nation for over 15 years. Our mandate is to get heirloom seeds into every home in America. Go to arcseedkits.com today and get free shipping by entering promo code podcast. That's ARKSeedKits.com, promo code podcast. Get your seeds, get prepared, get growing. ArcSeedKits.com. All right, so let's let's go back to some of the lessons of childhood, um, because I I love the stories and sort of how you got there. Uh, Rob, I mentioned you not so great necessarily on the football field, not kicking people's ass, more likely to be getting the ass kicked, which seems hard That's to believe, true. but okay. Um, and you write in the book about one of the important lessons you took away from your time with your dad on the basketball court. And I, I have a little aspiring basketball player. He's 12. And so I appreciate what you write in the book about this competition you had where you couldn't go inside at night unless one of you hit 20 free throws in a row, which, and you write in the book, that's effing hard. And that is hard. <laughs> that is hard. I can see it just with my own son. But tell us about where that went and what you learned from the experience. Well, that, that's, that is hard, but when I was, I was actually learning stuff that would help me in life is do everything like you do anything. And, and uh, if you want to be good at something, do it a thousand times. If you want to be really good, do it 10,000. If you want to be great, do it a hundred thousand times. And a free throw to me, that, that's just a great analogy for life. Um, a, a free throw, it's, you know, bounce the ball three times, backspin, bend the knees, release. And like the only argument my father, Tom and I, well, dad, and I had was, uh, <laughs> Do you look at the ball as you release or do you keep your eyes on the rim? I was a big believer. You keep your eyes on the rim. He would keep his eyes on the ball. But yeah, it was it was one of our things where um, you start with a make. Always start with a make because you you know you're in line. Your, your, uh, your feet are on the free throw line. Start with a make and then keep going from there. Like I was, well, even when I watch college and pro basketball, they make their free throw and they go shake everyone's hands. Knock it off. Keep your feet on the line. Make the second one. Then we can all talk about how cool you are. But <laughs> we got to a point where it was uh, 20 in a row no matter what to leave the gym. Um, and it, it didn't matter if it took us the first try or five hours, but the cool thing was we also had at, at the beginning of our season, which ended after my season, it was 20 to leave the gym, but then 20 to go get a steak at the Derby. Uh, so it stayed 20 to leave, but once we hit the steak, then it goes up by five. So it's now it's 20 and 25 to get a steak, then 30 to get a steak and then 40, 45. And we got to a point my senior year where my father made 91 free throws in a row and it was awesome. And that was a family record that lasted for less than a week because the next <laughs> week I made 105 in a row. But 
what we were learning is that's the same thing with shooting. It's the same thing with your follow through. Do the same thing. Front sight focus. How are your knees? What's your position? And just shooting free throws like that is like uh, it's it's as simple as um, people will, like aspiring Navy SEALs are like, uh, I'm not good at pull ups. How do I get better at pull ups? It's like, oh, that's simple. You do pull ups. Simple. Yeah. Right. Do more pull ups. I got. I want to go to this the Derby. Does it still exist? Is it still in Montana? Oh yeah, the Derby's there in Montana. You've, I know you've been to Butte and yeah. the Derby and they. My buddy owns it. He's actually the uh, principal at a school in Chicago. And I've dropped the Derby. That's three times. I better get something out of this. <laughs> All right. I'm going, I'm just going to go amazing. there. I'm- they don't even know how good they are. They don't even know they're that good because it's, you know, it's beat Montana. They don't, they just expect everything to be delicious. Derby's incredible. <laughs> I'm not going to put anything like that sort of challenge in front of myself to get there. I'm just going to go and eat. I'm, I'm not going to go, go 106, three, three throws and beat the Rob O'Neill record. Yeah. That's what's um, funny yeah. about that story too, is, uh, is, uh, I was, I was, Okay with 105 in a row, but I was so angry at missing 106. <laughs> it's crazy talk. You realize that, right? Okay, that's how that's how you become Rob O'Neill. I get it. Um, but, you know, Dakota, it reminded me, uh, you wrote something in the book. Forgive me, I don't have his name right in front of me. But it was about um, one of your commanding officers who kept saying, what was it? Um, hold the line or nine, nine. What, what was, what was the, he kept, it was like the lesson that he kept drilling into you and you hated it at the time. Couldn't understand why you had to keep doing it. Well, you know, so like when I when I got to the fleet, um, I came to a, a group of Marines that had just came back from Haditha, the triad. And um, one of my seniors, he'd lost they lost quite a few of our unit. And um, yeah, his name was Dan- Daniel Kreitzer. Uh, I'll never forget him. Just an incredible guy. And he always he always just like ran into us nine lines, like nine line medevac. It's a it's a it's a uh, it's a format that we use to medevac out wounded wounded marines or you know wounded service members uh, on the battlefield and it's so critical right i mean he just drilled it into us while uh, a lot of other marines their team leaders were messing with them and were you know playing games and and doing all these other things uh you know ours uh, was always just making sure that that was something that we could do with their eyes closed at any point in time under any piece of stress because at, at the end of the day that was ultimately what was going to take care of um, you know, uh, get, to get our, our whoever one of our our brothers or or us or, or whatever uh, to to safety to where they can get help, and that was why you know that was the core to everything that we did, whether we were out training uh, for IEDs or, or whether we were out you know shooting. Uh, you know, our, our nine line was the very basic, the minimum that we had to be proficient at in order to to, to go out, and and everything's habitual, right? Like everything in life is 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 habitual. Uh, you can't. Don't ever think that you can do the, uh, you know, do it when it matters if you can't do it when it doesn't matter. Exactly. And that's kind of what Rob was saying about the basketball in the book. He's saying it's not about becoming a great basketball player. It's about like getting muscle memory and getting to the point where you're you don't even have to think about it. You just keep doing it over and over and over. It becomes second nature, whether it's basketball or it's shooting or it's the nine lines, you know, and in the military, they get that. And but it applies, as you point out in the book, to regular life. I mean, a lot of people have goals that they want to achieve. And it's like, if you got to think about it in the moment when the stress is on, you're already in trouble. Yeah, I, I truly believe that, you know, I truly believe and I speak on this a lot is that, you know, the, the, the results of, of the time, like, look, all of us are going to be tested. We're all tested at some point. Um, and, and the results of that test, when it comes up, uh, are already decided. 
They're already decided by the micro decisions that you made all the way up to that point, right? Uh, the, the results, whether you're going to succeed or fail, are already decided at that moment. And so it, it matters. It matters what you put in your body. It matters every little aspect of it. You can't expect um, to, to, to be a good person, but only be a good person in parts of your life. You can't expect to, you know, like there, it's just it's either one way or the other. You can't be both. And I, and I truly believe that. Now, Dakota, you you write in the book about your own personal background, uh, born and raised in Kentucky. Yeah. OK. And um, you tell us a little bit about Big Mike and the role that he played in. I don't want to be too dramatic and say saving you, but kind of in a little in, in a way saving you. Yeah. I mean, you know, my, my dad is uh, my dad's probably the, the greatest man that's that. Uh, you know, I've ever met that walks the face of the planet. Um, my dad's a very simple man. Uh, my dad is, is principally based. You know, my dad didn't, he never, you know, he, he was all about, you know, he never cares what anybody else thinks, right? Um, but with that, you know, my dad's very direct. My dad is very straightforward. But um, my dad does that not because he's trying to be controlling or not because he's trying to do it out of convenience for, for himself or to make things easier. Um, my dad was that way because he cared about you, right? My dad was that way because he, he, um, he wanted you to be better and he was going to hold you to a standard that, that, that would accept nothing less than you being the best that you can be. And, you know, my dad was all about people, right? Um, about taking care of yourself, taking care of the things around you and, 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 you know, taking care of the people around you, not, not, you know, dishonoring your name, right? The, there's a lot of people that have the same last name. And, and, and when you disrespect that, or you make that look bad, uh, that, that, that's a spill factor for everybody. Um, yeah, you know, and, and what's incredible was, is I, I didn't know it until I was 13. Um, you know, but, but, but my dad, uh, Big Mike, um, he adopted me. And so, you know, as a you, father I, You myself, didn't know that until you were 13. Yeah, yeah. Um, my, my, my mother gave me up when I was like nine or 10. Um, and I honestly, I don't even know the whole story about how they got together. I've asked, I mean, like, if you want to talk about, um, you want to put an investigator in, you should go try to figure out where I was born. Because if I asked my mom where I was born, she tells me one place, my dad tells me another place, and my birth certificate says an entirely different place. Oh, boy. So, uh, you know, yeah. So just to go ahead and give you a little bit of coordination on that. Um, so, so you know, I, I found out I was, I was adopted when I was 13. My mom kind of gave me up when I was nine or 10, let me go live with my dad, whatever she's got to say to justify it. Um, but you know, I, um, I went to live with my dad, my dad took me in and, and just, you know, full-time dad, you know, working 40 to 60 hours a week on his job and then living on the farm and working. And he's just, you know, he was an example. And, you know, I found out when I was 13 and this is, this will give you a, a true perspective of just how my dad is. Um, you know, my mom brought me in on my 13th birthday and laid these papers down in front of me because she wanted me to move back in with her. And she said, um, uh, Hey, you know, this is, uh, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're adopted. And I was like, what? Like, yeah. She's like, you're, you're adopted. Your dad adopted you. He's not your real dad. And, um, I, I just, I'll never forget just being like, so lost is like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, like this, this is like, what, what do you mean? And, um, so I went back, you know, I got, got dropped off at my dad's house. My dad had no clue she did this. Um, and I was so mad and I'll never forget. My dad could tell I was upset, obviously, and my dad came in and, and, and he looked at me, he heard me out. And I was like, I was really mad at him. I'm like, why didn't you tell me you've been lying to me? 
And he looked at me and he goes, Dakota, um, what does it change? What does it change? What does it change between us? He goes, I'm still your dad. You know, we don't have the same blood running through us. You know, I'm still your dad. And it doesn't change how much I love you. It doesn't change, you know, anything about our relationship, does it? And so at a young age, my dad taught me that, you know, blood, just because you're blood doesn't mean you're family. And just because you're not blood doesn't mean you're family. And, you know, that's just the type of man that he is. I mean, he is the, uh, I mean, he's just an incredible human being. Mm. That's an amazing story. And he comes as one of the heroes of the book, for sure. I mean, the way and he got you when you came home. And I want to know Big Mike. Big Mike sounds like an extraordinary person. And, you know, it's good because to me, it's like a it's just a reminder of the importance of a strong, in particular, male role model for little boys, you know, and the importance of a dad in one's life, a strong father figure or father um, can teach you all sorts of lessons that, you know, you you may not see coming. And over on, on the front in uh, in Butte, Montana, Rob, you had great yes. parents, but the, you write about a story I hadn't yet heard about you, about there there was a guy in town named Ben who turned out to be pretty much a badass and little yeah. Rob O'Neill wanted to be just like him. Now, he wasn't a seal, but tell us about Ben and the lesson you learned, in particular, when he walked into, I think it was a bar or something, and you were like, okay, I see yeah. a difference here. Yeah. So uh, I grew up with Ben. Um, we went to the same school and he was always, you know, he was a, a always lifting weights, always working out huge guy on the, uh, the football team. And ever since I knew him, he wanted to be a Marine. And that was his thing. Like he was going to be a Marine. He always had a, a great haircut. As soon as he got a truck at like 15 <laughs> years old, he uh, had the Marine Corps sticker on there. And as soon as he, um, as soon as he graduated the next day, like his, he was going, it's not like he was from a military family. Ben was just going to do that. He was a monster when he left. And when he came back, now we were talking about there's tough guys in Butte, and then there was me. Uh, I was working, I was delivering pizza, and it was a pizza joint and a bar uh, at night, um, and it was called the Vu Villa. And I was in the Vu one night, and Ben 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 came in, and he just looked like a Marine. Now that's him. He he kind of he walked in, and uh, he almost he was so cool. He almost looked like he didn't recognize anybody because he knew everyone was staring at him. Mm -hmm. And it's like the whole, uh, you know, yes, I will go home with that girl, but I'm going to beat up her boyfriend first type guy. Um, <laughs> but I mean, he obviously didn't do that. Just a great guy, but he looked like that. And it was, it was impressive that uh, that got my interest in the Marine Corps. I still wasn't quite going to go yet, but I was like, if I ever decide to, that's what I, that's what I want to aspire to be. I want to look like, and like, You'd be, Butte's not a big place. You'd be driving around town and he's out there getting his PT on, you know, his physical training, running down Blacktail Lane with uh, no, you know, Marine Corps shorts and no shirt on. Just like, that's a Marine. That's what Marines look like. God help the enemy. Yeah, right. And you're like, I'll do it. I'll do it. And then you told us in our last interview about you got a little sidetracked by the Navy recruiter who was like, well, oh, yeah, when I, when I decided to join, I, I went into it because it was a time to get out of town. And the quickest way out of Butte, Montana is, is to join the military. And because of hunting, um, you know, my dad and I thought we were the best shots in the world. I'll go be a Marine sniper because uh, after, you know, I saw Ben and then I watched Full Metal Jacket and uh, I read Carlos Hathcock's book, who was uh, uh, the greatest Marine Corps sniper. And I went to join the Marine Corps and I, I walked down there right in the office and the Marine recruiter was not in the office. Uh, but the Navy guy's office right next door. And Ben had actually been the guy that told me like he was he, he was a guy that would mess with you. But. He's messing with you and he's joking, but he looks like he, he could just squash you. He said the Marine Corps is actually part of the Department of the Navy. It's just the men's department. And that's why when <laughs> Navy guys off. Dakota's shaking his head yes for our listening audience. Dakota the Marine likes this story. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying not to brag too much about the Marine Corps because uh, 
the war hero sitting next to me. Right here. <laughs> and uh, so I went Go in on. there and um, the, the Navy. Now, what I didn't know about the Navy is if, if you wear khakis and have anchors, you're a chief. Uh, and chiefs are very, very clever. And uh, I said, hey, if anyone knows where the Marine is, you will because you're part of the Navy. And he goes, why do you want the Marine? I said, I want to be a sniper. Marines have the best snipers in the world. He said, look no further. We have snipers here in the Navy. You need to be a Navy SEAL first. No big deal. Then we'll send you to sniper school. <laughs> kind of brushed over that part. And um, Super fun and, then I, and I'm looking at this guy and he's kind of, you know, he looks like a Navy guy. He got some coffee stain on his shirt. whatever. And I said, you know, I'm naive. I'm 18, but this guy's a professional recruiter. Why is he going to lie to me? <laughs> and that's how I became a Navy guy. I Way before. Way before if, going to, to secret training, but that was, that's, you know, they, they, they signed, I signed the government contract and then he showed me videos of Navy SEALs. I was like, oh, I guess they swim a little. I didn't really know how to swim. We don't swim in Butte, Montana very much. We shoot free throws. It's so crazy to think about that guy sitting out there in the middle of what ocean was it when you rescued Captain Phillips? That was in the Indian Ocean. Um, yeah. That, yeah. So that was uh fly from Virginia Beach, jump at, a, I think, we, you know, just below 10,000 feet with four boats and then, uh, we're in the Indian Ocean. I was good at that point. I learned how to yes, swim the I, hard Yes, I way. think so. I think we, we know that by that point. Can you tell a story? We never actually got to this. On my one, If you want to listen, this is literally my favorite interview I've done since I launched the show. It was my Memorial Day interview with Rob O'Neill. It was unbelievable. I have so I have people stop me on the street. Dakota's rolling his eyes. He's like, don't feed his ego. Too, too late. Um, but seriously. You should, to be fair, I think you should go ahead and say it's only because you haven't had a one-on-one interview with me. <laughs> Definitely. Like, we need to get into, hello, Medal of Honor. I was like reading all of Rob's uh, like awards, his many, I mean, like a silver, du- the double silver star and the, and the triple bronze star and all this stuff. And I was, I was floored until I got to Dakota's resume. Yeah, oh, I know. I, I, whoa, wait, bring that up. No, but I was just going to say, if, if, if you don't like my May 31st, my Memorial Day interview with Rob O'Neill, I can't please you. I'm not for so, you. That was I, had a blast. You, you were spectacular. The way you told the story, just riveting. Um, so if you got two hours, you got a nice long car, dry, car ride, put it on. Listen, you're welcome. But one of the things we didn't get to in that interview that I wanted to ask you about was the moment before you went off to rescue Captain Phillips and you, you wrote a story. I don't know, maybe it was your first book. I can't remember, but it was about how you were training back stateside and they, they gave you the call. You got to go. And you went into like the, the place where you buy the, the food and you were in line and yeah. some guy was looking at the newspaper. Yeah, we um, well, we had, ne- we had never done this. Like Steel Team 6 was designed to rescue Americans at sea. And we'd, we'd been announcing since, not, well, not me, but like the team since 1980, we can be anywhere within 24 hours. Never done it. Um, and we got the calls like, you no kidding, get the call. Like it's on, we know we're going. And I had a set amount of time to get to where I was going, but I was ahead of schedule and there's a seven 11 right outside the base. So I stopped there with a plan. I'm going to get as much, uh, cash as I can out of the ATM. And for an E6 in the Navy, that's a lot of cash. Um, a log of Copenhagen and a carton of cigarettes. And the reason I'm doing this is because we are going to be jumping today. We'll be on the East coast of Africa, but there's never a perfect plan. And we might not end up where we want. Um, but if I land in a semi-permissive environment, I might be able to buy my way to safety with the cash. I might be able to, to barter with the tobacco i do have a gun and i used to call my gun the m4 charge card like a credit card like the way that works is you have a car i have a gun now i have a car and a gun um, but um, i'm in line to get my stuff and there's a dude in front of me who i'm assuming was like a lineman up on the power poles or whatever and, and he's working all night night shift now he's off no hurry whatsoever and he's one dude in front of me and one of the things this dude other than a, a big thing of coffee he's buying was a usa today and the headline 
on the newspaper, I could see over his shoulder, um, was about the mission we're trying to go do. And very patriotically, he slammed it on the counter and kind of announced to the entire store, you know, whomever would listen, man, I sure wish someone would do something about this. And I, I'm recognizing the irony and I tap him on the shoulder and I go, buddy, pay for your shit and we will. And now he's <laughs> looking just at me. Thinks I'm moving along. I, 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 I'm looking at this blue, blue collar worker and I'm like, I'm not even kidding, bro. Like the national security timeline is squarely on your very broad shoulders, <laughs> my man. And then like, and he was nice. He kind of realized he's right in front of where we're supposed to go. And he was cordial and he, and he got out of the way. And, um, you know, we got to work on time and, uh, Everyone got to work on time. And what was, I mean, you got to figure. So there's Navy SEALs, but now there's boats that needed to be ready, gassed up. Their parachute riggers had to have them already rigged. The, the parachutes for us to jump the tandem rigs, the pilots were on the way, the air crew, everyone had to be ready. By the time we all got the call, 15 hours and 46 minutes later, we had a full head count in the Indian Ocean. We rescued Richard Phillips a day and a half later. It was amazing. Oh. My God, it's so crazy. This is reminding me of like your story and your story, Dakota. I'll take you back many years ago when I was in law school and uh, I was we were applying for like the law school or the law review. I think it was law. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, actually, I take it back. We were applying for jobs for jobs for out of law school. And I was on the law review with this guy who I went to school with. His name was Brian. And and Brian had served in the first Gulf War and Brian had received a bronze star. And Brian had received the Bronze Star because he got to a minefield and um, his job was to refuel the tanks at the front line. And the tanks had almost no gas and he was going to refuel. So he had the fuel. And so, as he said, you know, you know, we call a tank with no gas a target. So he's like, I've got to get there. (laughs) He's like, I got to get the fuel up there. But so he comes up to a big minefield and there's no way around it. And he realizes like, I'm not if I try to go left or go right, I'm not going to make it in time. But his commanding officer said, go left or go right, because you're not going to try try to drive these refueling trucks over this minefield with all these guys. And Brian said, this is a Dakota Meyer move where you just totally disregard the orders you've been given. This is how you get a star, by the way. That's apparently how you get a medal. You just got to disregard our <laughs> orders and, and then live. Um, so he got out of his truck and he personally, even though he was in charge of the unit, he walked personally and and you could see the mines, you know, so he picked them up and moved them and created a path for the trucks to go through to refuel the the tanks at the front line and they made it and his commanding officer knew he made it because they got there in far too fast a time for him to have been compliant with the orders and he, he reamed him out on the spot for disobeying the orders but that's how he got the bronze star and let me just flash forward to you so the brian was applying for the same job i was he was in the one in the one office talking about leadership and so on and i was in the other office talking about law review and how i used to be the head cheerleader <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, it's like Theo Vaughn says, uh, you know, everyone has their own Vietnam. <laughs> That's right. For Trump, it was what was it, like syphilis. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> this where, is the where, thing where, about you leadership. Know? You really do have to do it in order to learn and put yourself out there and do not do not put yourself up against somebody who's won a bronze star, a silver star, medal of honor. You'll lose. All right, there's so much more to go over with these guys, Rob and Dakota. Uh, they're sticking around for the whole show, loving the interview. And remember, if you are loving the interview, would like to hear that Rob O'Neill interview or any interview just like it. 
Check us out. We are, in addition to being live on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111 every weekday at noon east, uh, we're a podcast too. And so you can go ahead and subscribe uh, to Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, subscribe to our show on those platforms, and you'll get the podcast for free. The Rob O'Neill interview you need to listen to is episode 109. And check us out on YouTube as well if you want to watch the episode instead of listen. YouTube.com slash Megan Kelly. Go ahead and subscribe to that too if you would. Dakota, you, I can't skip past my, my cheerleader story without talking about your cheerleader story. And it's not what the audience is thinking. It's not like the young, hot Dakota Meyer and the cheerleaders. It's a lesson about learning to trust and how important it is and staying humble, uh, which you, I understand, were taught firsthand while in high school. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, you know, I was a football, I was a football player. I'm like Rob. Um, I wasn't getting beat up. I'm like Rob. I got to bring up old um, shit. But uh, yeah, you know, like I was your typical, I ran track, played football, um, played some basketball, uh, you know, and that was kind of, that's what I did. And so there was these, uh, you know, they're like sisters, uh, these girls and uh, Mary McKenzie and um, they were cheerleaders. And so, you know, I was always, have we had that you know brother sister kind of uh lingo you conversation whatever you want to call picking on each other and i was like you guys are cheerleaders like that's not even a real sport (laughs) and uh so then they're you know they're like well well you should come with us and i was like i'll come i'll come one day yeah I'll, i'll come to your cheerleading gymnastics or whatever it was and so we went over and it was a i guess it was like a travel team or or whatever and so got over there and i did their their gymnastics and we did you know where you do back tucks and things, back handsprings and whatever. And um, afterwards, they were going to do like some stunt stuff. Well, they had this great idea that uh, in a basket toss, you know, the back is is like really the person that, you know, catches the head of, of the uh, person that you're tossing. Uh, they're the person that, you know, is throwing, throwing. Uh, you get you get probably the most leverage on throwing. So I um, we had this girl, her, her name was Keisha. She was tiny. And so like, come over here and do this basket toss. And, and I'm not going to lie, like uh, hanging out with a bunch of girls was not so bad. Um, and went over there and threw up, you know, got, got under it. And I was like, I'm going to show, I got to show off. There's all these girls watching. So I threw Keisha and the ceiling in this place was not, <laughs> was not the highest. And uh, I'll never forget, like Keisha went up in the basket toss. She had to lay flat so that she didn't slam into the ceiling oh <laughs> and came back down. And I caught her and, you know, and there was just, it was really humbling for me to, you know, see just what it took to be a cheerleader. And so obviously I had to join, uh, you know, I was forced to join. It wasn't that I liked it or anything, um, <laughs> but just like being, you know, understanding and just seeing like, you know, just the athleticism that it took for those girls to do that and to be part of it was something that, yeah, I, I, I got taught and, and to be humble about it. Um, yeah. I got taught real early and to, and to trust the people that they're going to catch you. You know, I mean, that's that's like yeah. the military summed up in a line or two. Right. Like you got to Nothing's going to happen unless you trust each other to have each other's back. You, you get thrown up in the air or you go out first on the mission. Uh, it doesn't happen unless you've got this brotherhood or sisterhood. Yeah. And it's, it's the same thing in life. Right. You know, everything I've done, whether it's played football, whether it's work on a farm, um, whether it's uh, be a firefighter, whether it's be a cheerleader, whatever it is, you know, uh, everything's been a team sport for me and life's a team sport. The the need to maintain calm 
in stressful situations, whether it's being tossed up and a, with the ceiling coming towards your face like Keisha did, um, but not panic has been a central theme, really, I mean, of your both of your stories, really. I mean, in extreme circumstances, the ability not to panic cannot be overstated, but not everyone has it. And it's one of the things they try to train you when you're getting ready for these missions. And I know, Rob, you, you've talked about how fear, like when people say, like, how do you not get afraid? And you're like, I don't know. I don't ask me. I'm I'm afraid every time. But there's a there's a line between fear and panic. Not everyone can find it. Talk about it and how you mastered it. That that's a that's a tough one to teach. It needs to be learned through observation. And I remember the like the, even the first time I went to war, I was assuming the worst. Suicide bombers everywhere, gunfights everywhere. And um as I'm creeping around waste, wasting energy trying to hide behind everything every step I take, I look at my boss and he just looked really cool. He was calm. And I just remember thinking, I want to be like that. I want to be cool like that. And what I've learned is uh, um, calm can be contagious. No one can tell what you're feeling inside. But if you portray calm, everyone around you will be calm. And, and, and that'll, that, 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 that'll happen. But the op- like, fear is fine. Fear makes you think more clearly. Fear is when you're watching a movie and you can hear everything in your house. That's fear working for you. But it's when you start to freak out that it's dangerous. Like, like uh, panic is very, very contagious. The, uh, the proof, proof is recent. I will prove that panic is contagious. It's called, I call it the great uh, toilet paper debacle of 2020. The reason that happened, <laughs> as far as I know, and as far as most people should know, using toilet paper is not a survival necessity. It's just nice to have. You can, you can get on with it without toilet paper. But someone freaked out at a, at a store and bought all the toilet paper. And some asshole watched him do that. And he sprinted to the next door and he bought it all. And some other asshole watched him do it. And then everyone started doing it. Bam, we're out of toilet paper because one person panics. We all start to panic. And that's how it is. I mean, you can see it. Uh, it's actually fun. Um, I get to go in airports all the time. I flew in here uh, where I am today. I'm flying out tonight. I get to see people in airports and people are generally nervous in airports. That's why there is no such thing as drinking alcohol too early as a problem in the airport. Um, but watch people as um, somebody moves anywhere. As soon as they announce, hey, we'll be boarding this flight in 15 minutes, look around and watch people as one. It's like watching a herd of cattle. They start to move their heads. They start to stand up. And God forbid someone from zone five st- tries to board with zone one. That's when the mm-hmm. fight breaks out. And, and it's, it's that thing where everybody panics. But we talked earlier about muscle memory. Once we get on the plane, muscle memory, how you should be, you know, do everything like you do anything. I guarantee you the guy talking really, really loud on his phone in first class about how important he is in his business trip. He doesn't know where um, his life vest is. and He doesn't know how to open an emergency exit because he's too good for that. But he sure certainly can be the first one on the plane. And then, you know, once I, I always said kind of I don't want to be in a bad one, but like a semi crash. I want to see how people respond. Oh on a plane God. as you need to get out. Who's grabbing their iPads? Who's, I heard of, uh, the, the flight that went down in the Hudson uh, when Sully Sullenberger, uh, he, he said he was the last one in the plane. Is, they're in the Hudson, which I'm assuming has got to be not normal. He said he was walking through the plane. Some dude came out of the bathroom in nothing but his boxer shorts. He went in there, got in his boxers, and, and Sully said, what are you doing? And he said, well, we're going to swim, aren't we? Huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Yeah. So, uh, that's panic and panic can overtake you. But if you're good enough, uh, if you've done, like Dakota said, if you've done everything in your life to get to that point and muscle memory needs to take over, hopefully you shot the free throws like you should have. Hopefully you did everything every single time and you're good at it or you're great at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's January in the Hudson. I'm not jumping in there Mm-mm. in my box. You know, I'm, I have a mild fear yeah. of flying. <laughs> I mean, Rob, Rob, Rob's been kicked off playing for less. Way less you know what I mean? <laughs> 
Oh, I want to I want to know more. Did that make news? Should I know about this? Okay, but you're in yeah. no position. To, you are in no no position to cast stones, Dakota. You little Medal of Honor <laughs> winner. No, you have not. Because uh, I teased earlier that one thing that happened at your Medal of Honor ceremony that we did not know, and I played that moment over and over again. I mean, I interviewed uh, you on the Kelly file, we, and when and when it happened, we watched it. Well, President Obama, the whole bit, very moving. And at Fox News, we take the whole ceremony, put it on. Wonderful stuff. Dakota wasn't necessarily all there. At that at that appearance, apparently, um, speaking of drinking booze in the airport, it can happen before a Medal of Honor ceremony, too. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, I mean, what do you expect when you invite 200 and some Marines oh, yeah. to, to the White House? Right. <laughs> um, you know, we uh, when we were founded in a bar, just so you know, True. so oh, okay. we, okay. Uh, we got there and they uh, they were serving drinks. And before and I just I mean, you know, everybody wants to have a drink with you. Right. Oh, you got to have a drink with me. And we were drinking and drinking. And I'll never forget, like they put, you know, everybody went in to sit down. They, they actually ran, um, the White House ran out of beer. Uh, they, they ran out of beer at the ceremony and they had to find a way to get more in, which it's not just going down to the 7-Eleven on the corner. That uh, was very obvious. risky by you. Speaking of your big risks, I mean, can you imagine if you had like thrown up in the middle of the Medal of Honor ceremony? It would have been awful. No, I, you know, sometimes I don't really think about those things. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, uh, but I'll never forget. I didn't realize how, so everybody went in to sit down. I didn't realize how drunk I was <laughs> until, you know, me, the president, the president and, uh, you know, Michelle, we walked in after everybody was in there together. And I'll remember walking in and I'm like, I am wasted. Oh, no. and, uh, and so I'm standing up on stage and there's this moment, you know, cause like the whole back of the room is lined with cameras. And I promise there was nobody who, uh, didn't want to be there more than more than me. And so I'm standing up there, you know, my family, they're all fighting already, or well, some of them. Um, and so I'm standing up there on stage. And you know, I'm at I'm at position of attention. I hadn't been in a, a uniform in two years, you know, and, and I'm up there and I'm standing in position of attention. I know how Marines are like, if you do one thing wrong, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're, they're going to crucify you and you've just, you know, ruined the legacy of the United States Marine Corps, right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm standing up there. And I'm sweating so bad because these lights from the cameras and I go and I'm so drunk that I have to go up and I'm just, I'm like, and it's, you don't ever touch your face and I, I can't do it. So I've got to wipe the sweat off. And I think we thought that I was crying and uh, all these cameras would start going off like shh, everywhere. And I'm like, yeah, I was just wiping my head off guys. It's all good. Yeah. And, not uh, it. Not it. I'm just drunk. I'm just drunk. <laughs> well, the other thing is I'm, I'm with, you know, respect, you're a little, heavier in that particular oh, shot yeah. in that video than you are now and certainly than when you were fighting and you write about that too in the book and about your friend who gave it to you straight like everyone needs this friend i usually think it was just a woman thing you know because we need the friend who will be like y your ass does look fat in those jeans you should not be wearing those and you have the at your ass looks fat in those jeans friend I, I i did his name is uh his name's tim kennedy i don't know if you ever heard of yes him. yes uh, of course he, yeah we had him on yeah, just just an incredible guy. He's no he's a no bullshit kind of guy. Um, and, you know, I moved to Austin and I was going through I was going through my divorce, which was just, you know, was by far I, I would rather go through, you know, five Afghanistans than a than a divorce. And um and and you know I, I remember coming into the gym, we were working out on it, myself, him, and another guy. We were working out just on it, and it was kind of on it was kind of like my the gym was my kind of my 
like my my grounding piece to get me through this right working out and working with tim and shane uh and, and juan and they, they they it was my getting me through this right like they were literally um the people you know when you talk about contagious right like they were the people around me that were, were holding the line and i'll never forget i came in one day and i was just you know probably looking for some maybe a little empathy uh and i came in and i was like man um i said something about like i'm fat yeah i said i think i'm fat and uh and tim kind of like or i'm weak or something i can't remember what the exact line was but tim looked at me and he goes hey hey check it out um people look up to you as as a warrior and uh, you need to look like one you understand and I'll never forget. <laughs> I'm already down because my whole life is shattering around me. And that was Tim's way of empathy. But, you know, you have to surround yourself with people who tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. That's Richard. Yeah. Um, you know, it's such a so many times we surround ourselves in, and, and I yeah, see this yeah, a lot. We, we surround ourselves with people who make us feel good, you know, and that's the same thing that I was doing when I got out of the Marine Corps was I was. I was surrounding myself with people that made me feel good and I was eating things that made me feel good. And that's why I looked um, like this fat piece of trash <laughs> as I did as part of the globe. Representing the I think, I think Dakota learned a lesson I learned from my grandma. She said, there's a big difference between a surprise party and an intervention. <laughs> God, I needed an intervention, you know, and, and my life didn't really get back on track. You know, it didn't really start going forward. Um, until I started surrounding myself with people who would hold me accountable, who yeah. would, you know, you know, we, we have this false sense of brotherhood across the globe now. And I see it in a lot of service. I see this in the fire in, in the in being a firefighter. I see this in a lot of things and it's, it's, we want people to like us. And, and I see this with people parenting and, and, and it's not about people liking you. It's not about, you know, not hurting someone's feelings. It's about telling them what they need to hear so that they can go ahead and fix it. Right. Could you imagine if you walked in and a doctor just told you, um, you know, what was going to make you feel good? Oh, oh, you have you have you have diabetes uh, from eating too much sugar and you're uh, you know, you're morbidly obese. But hey, hey, it's OK. There's just more of you to love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, you need somebody who'll give it to you straight. I was I always talk about my primary care physician on the show because I love him and he really he's he's one of those people for me. He's on the radical honesty program. But he definitely does not like it when his patients get too heavy because it's it's not healthy. It's just not. And uh, apparently there was a guy who went to see him. You have to pay cash and then you seek reimbursement later. More and more doctors doing that. Anyway, there's a there was a patient who went in with his wife and they each got a physical and they had just moved to the to the area. So they, he was paying the the bill at checkout and his physical cost a thousand dollars more than his wife's physical. And he said to the receptionist, why is my physical a thousand dollars more than my wife's physical? And the doctor heard it and he came out and he goes, because you're fat. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? But he's like, listen, these are the number of things that are going to go wrong with you that I'm going to have to take care of or the long, long list way longer than your wife's. And so, yeah, you're going to have to pay more. But like, as it may sound mean, it's also good to hear because it can be the wake up call that that people need, you know, to sort of start changing their lives. And you you did. I mean, you look great and you got the drinking under control and, you know, all the all the things. So hats off to you. Um, all right. Now I want to talk about sort of the rule breaking part of your lives. Uh, and it's it's interesting because you're you know, you're these decorated military heroes, but you're also kind of rule breakers. By the way, Rob, my team graciously reminded me that you were banned by Delta for an anti mask tweet. Yeah, so. I wasn't, wasn't going to bring it up. I was going to say something that rhymes with Delta. <laughs> What'd you do? Did you just, just for a tweet, you got banned? Well, I, you oh. know, I, I, I took a 
photo a, a selfie that because uh, they look i had a mask on and they were serving us like stuff and i said i could take my mask off to to eat this they said yeah so i i took a picture and posted it that was a bad idea don't tweet that but then what's what's crazy is as i took off like a two-hour flight i didn't know it went viral and i landed no one had said a word i was wearing a mask the whole time when i get off uh turn my phone on getting blasted and my wife called and said, what did you just do? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, that horrible selfie is in the New York Times, you idiot. Didn't you say, like, did you consider saying, well, do, you, do you know why? Like, yeah, do, I, have you heard of Osama bin Laden? Like, did you try to play that card at all? No, no, I didn't. All I said was it was amazing on the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. I'm the one on a no-fly list. <laughs> That's something you and him had in common. Oh, gee. <laughs> it's crazy. They put Khalid Sheikh Mohammed on a plane before they put me on. I don't get it. Oh, my God. Please tell me they reversed themselves. Did they reverse themselves? I, not yet. They're too woke. <laughs> oh, Delta. You're going to get a lot of people banning you. You're, we're going to choose yeah, American Airlines. Airlines to put. Last night. <laughs> All right. American Airlines. I prefer American to Delta anyway, I got to say. So, uh, OK, so that that wasn't exactly the thing I was talking about. But let's talk about because we didn't actually get to this last time either. Um, you killed bin Laden. You were the man who actually shot bin Laden. And then there's a reason we know that because um, you you had an interview with, was it Esquire? Who, who did you give the anonymous interview to? The anonymous was with Esquire. And that was just more of uh, proof that uh, a lot of veterans don't know what to do when they get out of the military. That's what that was. That, that was, okay. about. That was an Esquire. <laughs> and then I remember being at Fox News when you gave the big interview to Peter Ducey, who back then was just known more as like Steve Ducey's son. Um, now everybody knows him as as Biden's chief antagonist in the White House press corps. But um, and I know you knew Brian Kilmeade and all that stuff. So you came out with it and you'd been out. You were outed against your will prior to the re- revelation on Fox because uh, some magazine got a hold of the fact that it it was you and they, they tried to get ahead of it, which wasn't good because you needed to secure the safety of your family. And you, know, you have to take arrangements before you come out with something. Like that. So but there was definitely blowback. And you write in this book about how even before that moment, there was jealousy. And I I do want to talk about it because I think we revere our military so much. We try to skirt past anything that doesn't reflect so well on them. But can you just Talk about that, because it was a little bit of a breaking rules to to come out. And, and you know, you you I think you say in the book, don't don't sit in the front row. That was sort of the lesson. Um, yeah, and, was, there, and there were people who had negative feelings about you even prior to you outing yourself. Yeah. And um, I can't blame them. I, I've seen missions done before where I wasn't part of it. And I was actually, why didn't I get to do that type thing? And, and you have guys so close to doing something and they didn't do it. And at, at first, it's I mean, everyone knew what happened. Um, and the first thing. That as soon as anyone found out Bin Laden was dead, especially the SEALs, the first question they would ask was, who got him? And uh, it was actually kind of funny at first because I was known for, like, I like morale. I like to tell stories and jokes. I guess uh, the common answer was, yeah, O'Neill got him. They would say, oh, we are never going to hear the end of this. (laughs) And it was kind of funny about that. But then, you know, the further we get out, it would be a a Navy SEAL out in town and and they would say, who got him? Like the bartender, don't tell anybody. But and so the, the word got out. My name got out. Um, around Virginia Beach, D.C., New York, and then other Navy SEALs in, in, in California. And so that right there, was it was more of, a, yeah, he's out there telling everyone, just trying to get, you know, we'd be at lunch somewhere and a shot of tequila would show up and, and the bartender would say, you, they don't want to know, but someone sent this to you, you know, it's for, and just weird stuff like that. I didn't want the attention. My, my plan was to be in the Navy for 30 years. I was going to be a buds and a SEAL instructor out in Coronado with a mustache and a cigar. Like I had my line ready and everything. All right, gents, today we are going to run 10 miles. And of course, by we, I mean you, stuff like that. But this this happened and it was just sort of a... Um, it got uncomfortable in the Navy. And and then obviously, you know, it was in May of 2011, the greatest 
time of our lives. And then in August, the worst time of our lives, we lost extortion one seven, 31 Americans to include the dog bark died. And we went from planning missions to planning funerals. Morale just hit rock bottom. Uh, and then, you know, we needed to move guys around. And I, I decided at that point I was going to get out. It would have been a few months, but I extended for a year to go to Afghanistan one more time. I went because I want I, I had told them, look, I'm not telling the story. I came in through the front door. I'm going to leave through the front door after another deployment. And then it was just time to get out. Um, and then um, uh, I, I went to work in Washington uh, and a, a congresswoman, Congressman Carol, Carolyn Maloney from New York said, you should probably donate something to the Memorial Museum. Uh, I did donate a shirt anonymously and um, with a flag on it. And it was just, you know, just to have there. And uh, once I gave the shirt, there was 30 people and they wanted to hear the story. I told the story. I did actually, Peter Ducey was there with the camera crew. We were filming it for historic uh, sake. And I told the story and watching their responses, they'd all lost someone in 9-11. And uh, just the way they came up to me and said, putting a face and a name with this, this there will never be closure, but this is healing. And I, you know, a lot of sitting around with it. I was like, you know what, if, if I can help them, I, I've assumed risk before I can do it. And then I, I, I came up with a, a manuscript and I submitted it to the Pentagon. So my book is the only one that was approved by all the agencies and the Department of Defense. And I believe if, if, if you have something historic, you know, and, and, and American, the world should know. I, I'm really happy George Washington had a biographer with him. I mm -hmm. did it the right way. And then, um, well, you know, that was after the, um, the Fox News came out. You were actually, I was watching your show. That was the first time I saw my face on television when, because oh, wow. you had because there was so much bad press and we kind of had to get ahead of it, but I couldn't get on because the special wasn't on for a few days. But I mean, that was a, that was a weird awakening to, to kind of like the way forward. You're here, you are launching the limelight. And now what do you do? Right. Right. And, and you dealt with it. And I know that a lot of the, a lot of the opinion on you speaking out uh, softened once they saw the piece on Fox and saw yeah, how humble you, what, you the, were. You were given the credit away. You that, That's what you always do. Yeah. That, that, but that week of, of sitting alone in a hotel room watching all the horrible stuff, I couldn't even watch the news. Just the horrible. Anyone that ever saw anything was trying to get the exclusive. And it was all over the news saying stuff like I didn't say that. Why would you say that? And then but then the, the Fox News special came out. And it was really good. Peter did a great job. He's still doing he a great did. job. Yeah, he is. Well, you know, it's so crazy about that. And then and then people were like, oh, it wasn't really Rob O'Neill who shot Bin Laden. And of course, you've already been backed up. But it was you. Um, and then I know with you, Dakota, Medal of Honor winner. Uh, they, the the vipers came out like, no, he overstated what he did. Not true. And it happened to Marcus too, Marcus Luttrell and his story alone survivor. No, he over like what? Who are these disgusting press people who decide it's time to eat our military heroes to tear down these stories of heroism? I, I mean, my own personal be belief being a member of the media is they're people who hate America and they don't like any story that reflects well on Americans or the American military or this country. They much rather tell a story of like abuse at Abu Ghraib. All right. Hold on. I'm going to get your reaction to that. And I'm going to get more on Dakota's extraordinary story and his rule breaking right after this quick break. Don't go away. Uh, looking forward to more of our conversation with Dakota and Rob in two seconds. Dakota, you write about how when you went for that Medal of Honor ceremony uh, that President Obama told you that your life was never going to be the same, that, that it was going to change forever. And in the wake of that medal. And you write in the book, Obama was right. Nothing was the same again afterward, not by a long shot and not in the way that the president and other people praising me intended. After the ceremony, reporters began questioning the whole story of what happened, claiming that parts were embellished or made up, that I had never killed the guy with the rock reference to your story and maybe hadn't killed any Taliban at all that I couldn't have saved as many people as I claimed and so on and so forth. And you say, even before I received the award, I knew 
I didn't want it. Receiving it made that notion feel even more true. So why, why is that? Why do you think the press, because I just pointed out before the break, has a pattern of doing this to our military heroes? Well, so in my instance, um, you know, so we started, we started embedding the press. I mean, obviously it's been for a long time, but like, so the, the one who came out and started talking, um, started writing this, these narratives, um, he was actually embedded with us that day. He was on the mission. Um, we were never in the Valley at the same time on my way in, he was on his way out. Um, there was a point at, at where he wanted to go in with me. And, uh, I looked at him and just said, no. And he left, um, he left out, went back to the base, uh, where it was safe, uh, while I continued to make four more trips in, um, and so this was kind of his moment to, I don't know. And, you know, he talked to a lot of the guys. There's a lot of guys on the mission that day um, that, that, that have their own opinions. But all I'll say is, is, um, um, you know, I, I don't, I've never claimed to, I've never claimed that I killed anybody that day other than the, the guy with the rock. Um, I don't know how many people I killed. I don't know how many people I saved just in my mind. I didn't kill enough because the war would be over and I didn't, um, I didn't save enough because I, I lost a lot of, a lot of friends that day. And, but when they come back and they start writing these articles and they start saying these things, you know, it used to bother me. I mean, it used to smash me. I'll never forget coming home. I flew in from a speech one day. And I drove home and uh, on the front page of the, the biggest newspaper in the state was uh, my me on the front of it. And it said Medal of Dishonor. Oh and I didn't gosh. ask for this medal. I didn't ask for the medal. Uh, you know, in, in the whole process of the medal, there's only one statement that's not included and it's mine. So, you know, by, by writing that, he's calling all of his friends a bunch of liars. Um so, you know, it's just, it was just an incredible, like just such a, a, a contradicting thing, but it really, it just said more about him than me. Right. Um, he could have grabbed a weapon and, and, and got busy too, you know? Um, and everybody's like, Oh, they wouldn't let me or they, well, <laughs> they told me no too. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, you, a lot of people were a lot closer to my teammates and the guys in there getting, getting, you know, getting killed than I was. Um, but again, it's back to the individual choice. It goes back to, um, the preparation and, you know, Rob talked about a little bit earlier about, you know, why do, you know, why do some people uh, act on chaos and why do some people not? And, and I just think it's, I, I don't think it's a, a nature thing. I think it's, it's a, um, it's a preparation thing, right? People who aren't prepared don't, don't act. And, um, and I think that that was the case of that day is, is, is most of them should have had no business um, being in that, in that situation. And uh, it showed whenever, whenever they were tested. And um, yeah, I mean, well, that, I just, that, I just that's think another that, piece of your story is that you, you had the smarts to disobey the authorities when you could see the authorities were wrong and that they, the trust in them was not warranted as we've seen now, thanks to the investigations into your military commanders who are calling the shots that day have played out that you, you were right, that, the, that they were giving you bad orders, that they, they, they were not on the right path, but it, it takes an extraordinary human being, to, especially as a soldier, to, to understand a Marine, to understand the difference because you're trained the entire time in the military to obey orders. And, you know, it's like uh, it's like the, from a few good men. Oh, do you only get to obey the orders you believe in or, you know, do you, it's up to you. to. And it's like, no, I have to obey all the orders. Yes, I get it. Right. You you found a way to disregard what you were being told and you did save three dozen lives at least. And and 
took a lot of lives that needed taking that day. And and I don't want to skip over, retrieve the bodies of of four of your fallen comrades, including First Lieutenant Michael Johnson, Staff Sergeant Aaron Kennefick, Gunnery Sergeant Edward Johnson Jr., and Hospital Corpsman Third Class James R. Layton, um, including taking the things off of their bodies that you knew that the families would want to make sure that those got back, you know, to the people who loved those guys. I mean, these are extraordinary acts of honor. So I don't know. I mean, when you, how do you I describe mean, what, what, well, what made you see, separate the wheat from the chaff that day and know what to do? Well, you know, so before we move on from, you know, the, the people who criticize or come out, yeah. you know, with, with, with what I did that day, um, you know, I, I was I was 21 years old. Uh, I left a room that was about the size of the conference room that we live in right now. And I had, uh, you know, three teammates that that were as close to me as it got. Right. We stood up. We, we woke up every day next to each other. We ate next to each other. We fought next to each other. And um, I left. I left there on a Monday and I returned on a Wednesday and I was the only one that came back there. I came back and I, I had to literally every bed that was in that where I lived in my home at that moment. Um, every guy that I relied on, every guy that I loved, um, I was literally putting their stuff in a bag to send home to their, to their family. Um, and, and so, you know, anybody who criticizes that or, or what I did, and they, they want to dispute seven versus nine or six or whatever it is numbers. I mean, they're, they're, they're cowards themselves. Um, as far as like why I did what I did, um, you know, I, I just, it, it was a simple, you know, I always talk about what's well, why I don't understand how I got a medal or I got uh, awarded anything because what I did was easy. Um, it was what needed to be done. It was clear there were, there were human beings who were suffering. Um, they were my brothers. They were my family. Um, it was, it was very clear, very obvious that, that, that they were trapped, that they were hurt, that they were scared. Uh, that they needed help. And that was that was clear across the board. Um, so can you just describe I mean, I described it at the top of the show as an ambush in which uh, folks were caught and you kept going back in trying to save people, trying to remove the, the, the bodies of the fallen, trying to save U.S. troops, Afghan troops, fight the enemy. But like, how do you describe it in a, in a few lines? Like what what happened that day on September 8th, 2009? Yeah, I'll never forget it. Like I turned like we've got the truck close uh, Rodriguez Chavez was driving and uh, we turned and it, and it was like a riverbed uh, going up into this valley. And, and um, I'll never forget going in there and there were bodies everywhere. I mean, there were bodies everywhere. I mean, you had the Taliban. I mean, like my driver in the truck was literally like he ran, like I'll never forget. He was running over the enemy because they were that close to the truck. Um, you know, the, the, it was just, I was always a worst case scenario guy. And this was worse than my worst case scenario. And, um, I didn't think I was going to die. There was a point that I remember that I didn't think I was going to die. I just, I just accepted and knew I was. And all I could think about as each one of these guys were shooting at me um, was, I know I'm going to die and you're going to get me, but you're going to have to earn it. And, um, you know, we came in and like on each trip we came in, um, we would bring in these trucks behind us, these little, these little Afghan uh, Toyotas. And we would, I would, or Ford Rangers. Yeah. And or, I don't remember which one it was, but anyways, it was all these trucks and we would throw, uh, I would throw the bodies in the back of the truck. I'd try to put the dead ones on the bottom. And then I would, the ones that had a chance to live on top of that and, and, and just send them out, just truckload after truckload. And, um, 
you know, all I could think about that day was it wasn't about Afghans. It wasn't about, you know, the Afghan soldiers versus U.S. soldiers or Marines. It wasn't anything about that. It was about good versus evil. And it was literally that simple. It was good versus evil. And um, that's not very hard to um, distinct between in these types of situations. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, I've talked to Rob O'Neill after the Afghanistan withdrawal. I haven't talked to you. This is our first time since that happened. How do you make sense of it? Right. It's been on a lot of minds lately, given what we've seen with Putin. Yeah, I mean, look, this is something we all knew uh, there. I mean, anybody who went over there and thought that we were ever going to put, you know, some type of democracy or we were ever going to have, a, a, you know, build a military up in, in Afghanistan that was going to be able to sustain itself as soon as we leave. Uh, they were just they were just kidding themselves. Right. But but with that being said, you know, how do I justify it? And and, and I justify it this right. You can like if you want to get in, in the rabbit hole, um, you know, of, of why we were there and how we got there. I mean, that, that's a whole other ball game. But but for me, I leave it at this is I didn't make the decision to go in and none of us who were in that uniform did who wore the nation's cloth. And what I'll tell you is, is for 20 years, um, Afghanistan and Iraq were safer than they'd ever been uh, in Afghanistan. When there was a, a U.S. flag on on when someone was wearing a United States flag over there and they were going through these places, uh, women were allowed to go to school. Um, it was as safe as it had ever been that they'd ever seen. Um, when America is somewhere, the place is better. Uh, the, 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 wherever we're at, it's better. And I, I'll say that, that while we were in Afghanistan, while our soldiers and Marines and airmen and, and everyone who served, wherever they were in these countries, uh, the, the place was a better place. And we were over there just trying to leave it better than we found it, right? It's not our fault that, that the people above us couldn't make the right decisions. What do you make of the the president, Biden? And, you know, we're going to hear from him in the State of the Union finally this week, uh, calling it an extraordinary success, not the war, but his his command of the withdrawal. Uh, I mean, look, I, I think that it, I mean, this is this is his way. Right. I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's um, he sinks the boat and then he rescues three people off of it as, you know, 10 others drowned. And, um, you know, it's a success that he saved those three people. Don't mind the fact that he sank the boat. Right. Um, I mean, th this is, you know, the Biden, Biden and his administration are so incompetent um, that the incompetency has led to, to Russia doing this. I mean, I, I can tell you right now that that, that is what America is, is on America's shoulders because of we picked a weak leader. And the fact is, is people don't want to don't want to hear this. But the fact of the matter is, and you're seeing this firsthand right now, is that when America is strong, the world hates us. But when America is weak, the world suffers. And you're seeing that across the globe right now. Hmm. Do you agree with that, Rob? Do you think that's fair yeah. to <clears throat> Biden? Well, I mean, it's, it's scary because like Dakota was saying, they can they can do anything and say anything because most of the media is going to go with it. You even had Jen Psaki the other day saying that we need to stop relying on we need to become energy independent without creating more gas. Like yeah. it's like you know, and I we, I tweeted the other the day. Yeah, you know, we, should, we can uh, we can all ride unicorns. That would work, wouldn't it? It's it's just <clears throat> the, the the issue is um, uh, it's a political reason to pull out of Afghanistan because they wanted the twenty year anniversary of look at us, look at us, and and they're going to still say it was a success, even though if we 
I, you know, I can always re- resort back to the planning for the Bin Laden raid. We had some of the best tactical minds in the world come up with the perfect plan. If we took those same 23 guys uh, a year ago and said, uh, come up with the worst way to get out of Afghanistan, we would have come up with exactly what they did, the worst way possible. Um, er- I mean, let's be honest, everything they've touched, being the administration, has turned to shit. And I should point out to the audience that you you're not like blindly anti Joe Biden. You write nice things about him, Rob, and say, you know, he was, of course, Obama's vice president at the time of the bin Laden raid. And so it's not like you came in saying he sucks. He's a Democrat. And I know you've said before and you've said in this book, I, I, when people ask me if I'm a Democrat or Republican, you would tell them what you say. No, I'm an American and, and I, I, I'm a big believer. I don't need to blindly follow what one party says. I think party politics, I think John Adams thought that too, was the worst thing. Two parties are going to destroy the country. You have people up there on Capitol Hill right now. I love the ones, both sides of the aisle, that call themselves war hawks, even though they've never been to war. No one in their family has been to war, but they sure are good at sending us because a lot of these uh, big time contractors are huge funders of their reelection campaign. Everyone on Capitol Hill, I mean, if you're like Nancy Pelosi, 19th term, because we just need some change, are you kidding me yeah um but i mean that's that that's where a lot of this nonsense comes from and and uh i i think it's okay to go issue by issue what's best for america first then what's best for the world and a lot of this i I've, i mean one of my the things i've come up with is we're going to get destroyed by climate change regulations long before we get destroyed by climate change mm-hmm. because there's no there's no uh, money in the cure. There's just money in the process. When's the last time the government started an agency and a year later said, well, clear that problem up, disband the agency. It doesn't happen. It grows and grows and grows. It's like Bodrum Airfield when we had it. We, we as guys on the ground we would call it the self-licking ice cream cone. Not sure what the hell you do, but you keep eating. You know, the last time you were on, you made the point about how these these long wars haven't gone very well in general because the generals aren't making the right calls and they don't really have a finger on the pulse of what's happening with the troops who are actually fighting the wars. And they sit in these well, conference rooms and they make these decisions. Yeah, nobody, go ahead. Nobody wants to tell their boss the truth in the military because one day they were, they're going to be that boss. Uh, you're going to lie and lie. Up to, like, you ask a four star general. Um, how the Afghan troops were going to do against the Taliban. You're going to get a different answer than the E4 on the ground. Not going to happen at all. Uh, the thing with the military, too, is if you have if you're in the military and someone else is carrying your bag, you need to retire. Carry mm. your stuff. Mm, I love it. Well, and Dakota, you realize this firsthand in the fight at 21 years old that you were being given bad information. They were saying, don't go back in there. And you went back in there and then you went back again and then again and then again and then again. And that's how you got all of the wounded out, not to mention the bodies of the fallen. But I think you may, you raise an interesting point in this book about how what you did that day was what was right, not what was expected. And you make the point that deference to authority is not always what's right. It's not always the right thing to do. It's not always good. And you write that it may actually be the downfall of the United States one day. Just this this sort of blind knee jerk deference to authority that we've had for far too often. I mean, I think that if there's one good thing about covid and the restrictions and all that, maybe it's stopping that. Maybe it was the beginning of the end of the American people's knee jerk deference to authority. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think if something else, I mean, look how long it took everyone to, to stand up to that, right? Um, I don't know. I think there's just too much trust put into people who are in roles, right? Uh, and, and the issue is, is that because like I, I spoke on earlier, people don't want to tell people what what they need to hear. They just want to make people feel good, right? Um, 
you know, all of our generals are all like they have to like they're they're selected like they're they're in politically to be able to get those stars. Right. That, that's one of the problems. But, yeah, I, I seen it. I seen it firsthand. I seen it firsthand that, you know, there was two investigations that were done on our battle uh, that, and, and that came back and said, and I'll quote, a direct loss of life due to leadership. Hmm. No one was held accountable. No one was held accountable. You know, and that's the issue is the lack of accountability inside of our military, the lack of accountability across the globe. Like we don't we don't have a we don't have a military. Like I, I can tell you right now, the guys on the ground, the guys who are the, the lower enlisted, I, th- there's no there's no problem there. Like there's no issue of of what they believe in. When you start seeing them be, become, you know, I hear so often, well, you know, our military's becoming weak or, you know, this new generation's weak. Well, let, let me tell you. Uh, if they're becoming weak, it's because of their direct reflection of leadership, because the leadership's weak. You want to talk about leadership. You know, we just we mentioned Jocko. You know, I think we mentioned Jocko earlier. But, you know, Jocko talks about how there are no uh, there are no bad teams. There's only bad leaders. And let me tell you something. We've had quite a few bad leaders uh, here in the past. Well, since I've been alive and, um, you know, but you're also seeing the power of what a good leader can do over in Ukraine right now uh, in this, you know, this 21st century David versus Goliath situation. And Jocko, Jocko Willink, he's been on the program. He talks about extreme accountability, right? He's the first one to say it was my fault. Here's what I did. Here's what I could do differently. That's the mindset you guys have, too. And that's exactly the opposite of what we've seen, you know, in the wake of so many of these conflicts. You tell me, Rob, because I think I think it about this about your point you made the last time because you made this even before you wrote the book about, you know, the generals and so on. Um, Part of this is why people are reluctant to do too much in Ukraine. If we hadn't done Iraq, if we hadn't done Afghanistan for 20 years, never mind the initial response, but that I think everybody would would agree that was justified except for the truly far left loons. Um, But if we hadn't done those things, I think we we would have come to Ukraine saying, oh, yeah, we need to go go do something. This is a sovereign nation. It's a a democracy. It's not perfect. Uh, It's not exactly a democracy like ours, but um, you can't invade a sovereign nation like Putin's doing. And, you know, the United States is, is, you know, we're the beacon of freedom in the world and we're the strongest military and the strongest country and and so on. We got to go in there, no fly zone or something. The reason we don't want to do it not only are we war weary, but we don't believe in the people calling the shots anymore. Forget Biden. We don't have the same faith in the generals that we used to. No, we don't. Uh, we haven't won a war since World War II. And even if you look at that, I mean, Russia was on that side, too. So they're kind of in there. Uh, you know, we had to drop nuclear weapons on, on Japan to win that thing. Um, but I think part of the issue, too, with the leadership, other than wanting their job and not wanting to upset your boss, is a lot of these places as far. Now, see, Jock was an exception because he was always the, the buck starts and stops here. This is my fault. Uh, right now, the, what they're good at teaching is structure. They think they're teaching leadership, but nobody teaches winning. Uh, you know, we could have pulled out of um, Afghanistan probably around 2005. We had it. We went in there. We do what military does. We crush people. And then we leave. Give them a stern no. That's a deterrent. Uh, Iraq. I mean, no one still no one knows what that was all about other than, you know, Dick Cheney was filling his pockets full of money. I personally took like 11 shots of anthrax because he had some stake in that. But I mean, now you look back at, at, at Iraq and all the hundreds of thousands of people dead. And we can I fought there a couple of times and I can literally sit there over a cup of coffee and say, huh, what was that all about? It, it turns out one guy was pissed that one guy tried to kill the other guy's dad. Let's invade. I think the towers were still smoldering two weeks later and the Pentagon's coming up with plans to invade Iraq. And this is the kind of stuff that's happening. It's, it's, it's poor leadership. A lot of not, you know, per, personal greed, personal power and no personal responsibility. How does Mark Milley still have a job? And, yeah. and the only one they fired was the, the colonel that had the, 
He didn't even, he wasn't even disrespectful. He just said, where's the accountability? Boom, you're fired. Put him in the brig. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's been absolutely no accountability for any of it. Like you say, for, for Afghanistan in the first place and the way it went south, for the lies that we were told, as we saw in the Afghanistan papers, of course, that came right from the top um, and and for the withdrawal. Right. And it's, so it's like we don't trust them anymore. If we if you guys were commanding the armed forces and we knew we could send them in under your leadership and it'd be a quick strike and it'd be effective and we'd do something that mattered and not get us in, into some drawn out conflict that would cost way too much American blood and treasure, I think the American people would be more like, let's let's go. Let's, you know, ball to the wall. But we're weary of a lot of things these days in the United States. And, you know, tomorrow night at the State of the Union, we're going to hear President Biden try to spin this all like it's hugely successful from from, you know, Afghanistan to, you know, Putin's stance now, like he fought back. It's like, well, how did he get how did he get to the point where he felt confident enough to do this? How did he get to the point where he could actually invade after weeks of being on the border saying he was going to do it and you, you weren't able to stop? Like, how did any of that happen? And so the accountability, at least with the politicians, can happen at the voting box with these generals. Not so much. Um, listen, I'll give you the last word. I'm going to wrap it. But I want to give you guys the last word on like the regular mom pa sitting out there sitting in the middle of my, my imaginary viewer, Madge. She sits in Iowa and uh, she works all day and she comes home. And she has a glass of wine. She takes care of her kids. But, she, you know, she's tired. She can't pay that much attention to the news. What does she need to know in this book? Like, why should she buy it? Uh, well, for, uh, first of all, we're all cut from the same cloth. And uh, it doesn't matter what you look like or where you're from, you can do anything. And one of the points I've been making recently, too, is the 24-hour news cycle in social media is not real. What's real is out that the real person is coming home, taking care of her kids. The real person, uh, the, you know, the real I, I've mentioned before, real America is not the people yelling at each other on who's left or who's right. It's the convoy that starts in Southern California that rolls through Texas. New Mexico picks up people to go to Florida to help the people who are hurting from a hurricane. That's America. And most people are good, believe it or not. Face to face, most people, doesn't matter what you do behind closed doors, face to face, most people get along. Uh, and, uh, you know, don't, don't, live in the, don't live in the past. Learn from the past. Get over it and move forward. Mm, and perfectly said, the way forward. Now, Dakota, while I have you here and we've, we've given uh, each other shit about Rob's interview, will you, will you be my Memorial Day interview this year? I would love to talk to you about your mission and um, those we lost and, and just get into it in more detail. It'd be such an honor. Oh, the honor would be mine and that of my viewers and my listeners. I'm sure will love it. I look forward. To, I didn't want to give it short shrift by just trying to figure it, fill it into like one block today. It's worth so much more than that. So honored to know you guys. Really appreciate you being here. All the best to you both. And thank you for your service. Thank you for having, Thanks us. For having us. Really appreciate it. All right. Don't forget the book is out tomorrow. You can order it today. It's called The Way Forward. Support these guys, support the military, support our country and buy this book. Take the lessons to heart in it. Don't forget to tune into the show tomorrow because we will have Gary Kasparov, former chess master and political activist. He has incredible insight on Vladimir Putin and Russia, and he's been making predictions for years that appear to be coming true. Uh, we'll talk to him. Plus, we will get ready for Biden's first State of the Union tomorrow night. Mm, I'll give you a preview of what I expect. And we'll talk about the miraculous change in COVID regulations just in advance of tomorrow night's remarks. I'm sure it's totally coincidental, right? What do you think? Let me know. In the meantime, download The Megan Kelly Show and check out youtube.com slash Megan Kelly. Go ahead and subscribe. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.